Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Food Fight podcast from EIT Food, Europe's leading food innovation community working hard to make the food system more sustainable, healthy, and trusted. I'm Lakshmi Baldassan. And I'm Matt Eastland. Now, over the past year and through COVID-19, we've been carefully tracking the different ways the food system has responded to the challenges the world is facing. So we've covered sustainability and supply chain resilience. But in recent weeks, a new and unlikely hero has emerged in England football star Marcus Rashford. His campaign for free school meals to continue through school holidays has brought to light an incredibly important conversation around food access and child food poverty during the pandemic. His efforts have been really applaudable and have certainly got us thinking. So inspired by that, we want to dedicate this podcast episode to the kids and ask, childhood nutrition and health, are we doing enough? So with us today, we've got two wonderful experts. We have Dr. Natalie Macento. She joins us today from the University of Reading, where she's a senior research fellow interested in the link between psychology and nutrition. You could say she's an expert in getting kids to eat more vegetables. More on that shortly. I'm definitely interested in that. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Hi, thank you for having me. And alongside Natalie, we've got Sarah Hickey from Guys and St. Thomas's Charity. There, Sarah is the director of a 10-year program looking to reduce childhood obesity in inner-city London. Thanks for joining us today, Sarah. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for being on the show, both of you. So just to kick this off then, we mentioned Marcus Rashford in his recent campaign uh, at the start of the show. So how do you think the COVID crisis has affected access to good nutrition for children? It'd be good to get your thoughts. Sarah, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, thank you. And yeah, I agree what Marcus Rashford is doing is is amazing. Um, I think COVID has exposed and exacerbated something that has been there for quite a while, which is a real inequality in access to good food for different children in the UK. And I think that's an inequality based on income and based on where you live. When we set up the Childhood Obesity Programme that we run at Guys and St Thomas's charity, we looked at the, that issue very fresh. And the first thing that strikes you when you just look at data on child obesity is the strength of the correlation between rates of child obesity and the average income of a neighbourhood. So if you grow up in a neighbourhood, the lower the average income, the higher your rate is of being obese. And I think that's the same side of the coin as food insecurity, because when we dived into kind of why, why is that the case? I guess what we found was that, yes, the families living in lower income areas are more likely to be flooded with unhealthy food options, but also less have more barriers to access the healthy. So I think for, for the last 10 years, there's been this, um, this inequality issue around access to nutritious diets for children. And COVID had just exacerbated that because those barriers related to income, food security have just got bigger because of the pandemic. Tragic, really. And, you know, Natalie, do you agree that uh, COVID has exacerbated these issues? I mean, I, yeah, I think I completely agree with Sarah. And I mean, I don't work in that space particularly, but I could see it for myself that, you know, we're seeing it in the news and, and just in my community, there's just been, it's interesting, there's been a combination of both 
people being open about limited access, but then also kind of people really these incentives to support and help. So loads of local cafes in my area are supplying food and kind of trying to bridge that gap, which I think is so wonderful, but also quite awful that that has to happen. Um, I know that from my kind of perspective as a researcher in this area, there is so many initiatives about like trying to get access to, to vegetables and good food from a public health perspective, but we've known for a long time they don't reach the right people. And I know that as a researcher, we know what needs to happen, but it's just about how we're reaching the people and engaging them and actually sometimes actually creating content that is relevant to people. And I think um, I hope that, yeah, in this whole kind of pandemic situation, we're realizing how can we do that effectively? Because there's no point kind of a top down approach where we're kind of telling people, oh, you know, just make sure you get your five a day. So that's interesting. Yeah. I guess, um, you know, you sort of started touching on some of the possible sort of solutions bit. But before we dive into that, Sarah, so I guess it's just sort of unpick a little bit about the complexity of the issue. So from your perspective, like why is childhood obesity such a complex crisis at this time? And, you know, what are some of the factors at play here? Mm, It is complex, as you say. And I think that complexity can sometimes lead to a bit of a freeze, like inertia over what the solutions are, because you get lost in the complexity. And I guess... I think what we try and do at our charity is to work out what are those practical building blocks to tackling the issue. I think from my perspective, I guess the first important thing is to really see it as an issue of inequality. So, you know, there's a structural fundamental issue there. That's not about individual choice, really, as much as it is about unequal access. So I think that's the first fundamental. The second is, yeah, so we we are thinking about obesity, obviously, but nutrition is obviously all about what you eat. So it's about food and what people purchase, what they, what they eat, what they access. And then when we dive down into it, what we try and focus on in our area is uh, what we call food environments. So essentially the spaces in which children and families spend their time, how are those spaces promoting or not healthy diets? Um, And fundamentally, what that means to us is what literally are the food options that surround people in their day to day lives and how are they promoted, made attractive or made less attractive? So basically, we think it's all about looking at what is what are the food options? What is the shape of the food environment in these places that children spend their time, which are high streets, you know, shops and food retail environments? school environments, you know, their canteen and the food provision in those and early years environments as well. So, yeah, that, that's the fundamental building block. And really, I guess what we try and do is to find the decision makers who control those spaces. So when we're talking about food retail, I guess who we're trying to work with is your supermarkets, your food manufacturers, your fast food outlets mm. to say, how can we reshape these spaces so that they still meet actually a variety of needs that people have when they're coming to buy something, but there's a healthier outcome in terms of what they purchase and what they consume. So I think that's kind of what we try and focus on, these these spaces. And actually, the whole system is complex. I think some of the solutions are less complicated. You know, there is an evidence base about what, the things you can change in the food environment are that have the most potential impact on someone's eating behavior. 
So, and the fundamental principle is put as least little effort on the person as possible because we're all bombarded with, you know, hundreds of decisions about food every day. So it's very hard to make a kind of very active, informed decision each time. So how can you go with where people are already at, where they go? And how do you kind of put as least effort on them as possible at all? But that leads to healthier outcomes. So, for example, you know, reformulation is a perfect example. You've changed the makeup of a product that someone buys only to a point that they don't even notice. So from their point of view, nothing has changed, but actually what they are consuming is incrementally healthier. Um, So I think there's some principles there that actually, for me, feel less complicated um, and help you kind of navigate what is, of course, a really complex system. I love that. And it sounds, you know, what you talk about food environments, I feel like this is quite, I was thinking about, you know, informed decisions and behaviors. And this is very much directly your area of research, Natalie. So do you see a link between psychology and food environments and nutrition? Can you tell us a little bit your thoughts on this and maybe link it a little bit to your research? Yes, sure. So I guess the research that I do at Reading, we look at how exposure to particular foods does encourage consumption and how positive exposure. So we're looking at how just looking at pictures of vegetables encourages, you know, children to be more willing to try them and then actually eat them and like them. We've been doing that research for a long time and we've been working on a project called See and Eat where we've created ebooks that are available in six languages where you can read these kind of ebooks and we've got evidence that they do improve vegetable consumption. And I think it seems like, again, it's a simple idea, but it's, it's, a, it's all about exposure in the environment and we know accessibility as well. As a psychologist, I know that there's so much about the bigger scale environment as we're talking about. So why is it that we have so many fast food areas in lower socioeconomic places? So where I live, it's a very diverse part of Reading. We've got various fast food places every 300 yards. And that's there on purpose, isn't it? Because they're popular. And it's, so it mm. kind of creates this cycle of, of reinforcing that those foods are available so people eat them so then they're not going to be willing to to try other things so i think yes it's all about kind of the personal drives but the food environment is complex and i don't i think it's working against us it's working against a healthy nutritional environment i was just thinking about this very specific environment in the home and you know i was thinking about because what you're basically saying is your ebook so you're exposing kids to images of vegetables earlier on is is sort of my understanding so that they get more accustomed to it so is visibility then like one of the most important things I mean for, so for example for me I was a child of the 80s and uh, you know it was my mum and dad were constantly trying to get me to eat things which were healthy but they were always sort of hiding it in my food and things like that so I kind of grew to think that those those sorts of things are bad for me so Mm -hmm. is that the kind of thing you're you're finding yeah so the the fundamental research that and I teach this actually at the university um that when it comes to encouraging good um you know good healthy diet it's all about you know exposure accessibility and and also good modeling so you want to be able to to show good examples of having those vegetables in the home or good foods in the home and you want to see your parents and your older siblings your friends eating those things as well and it's just those simple things that I think a lot of people do do that but it's just um of course the stresses of, of life also get in the way as well but the research we have at Reading we very much focus on so exposure to healthy food sounds like a simple idea but actually getting a child that's getting a little bit fussy with they don't want to eat broccoli it's quite a strong flavor 
parents have reported they know it's it's hard to get your child to force them to eat broccoli so actually what we found is that visual exposure so just like pictures actually mm -hmm. supporting that expert so it doesn't have to always be you know using the airplane technique of trying to stuff it in their mouth it can just be through <laughs> simple images and you know it's using these kind of things that i know that in school campaigns even just having stickers of vegetables and magazines with vegetables there is some evidence that that's another way to be effective and we almost need it in our in our environment i'm i'm expecting a, a baby and i'm actually getting little toy broccoli thank you i'm getting little toy broccoli and, and little toy avocados just to kind of as a way to kind of visually expose them to vegetables <laughs> early on because i mean i can't say that's there's evidence for cute little veg but just You're practicing what you preach now yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah but sim but simple things like that it, it's it's but of course not everyone has access to do that but um, mm. but i think there could be a more supportive environment that helps achieve that yeah i was so interesting listening to you natalie because i think the home environment's almost like a micro version mm. of the world <laughs> the world yes. that we then go out in and i think that idea of exposure and visibility like i would completely agree with that and as you say natalie then you step out from your home you sort of have the most control it's to some extent some control over your home and right you step out and then what are you exposed to then what's visible and when we think about just, I guess, just an example, advertising spend, the size, don't quote me on these specific statistics. My, my colleague in the organisation mentioned it to me, but I think the principle is very interesting. So the Public Health England, obviously doing big campaigns on mm -hmm. eating healthy, essentially a marketing and advertising campaign targeting families. You know, the size of that, the budget for that campaign, someone mentioned that's the size of Werther Originals advertising budget. Words wow. original is one tiny product. Mm -hmm. um, so if you think about what well, the scale of advertising, which the, the majority of the proportion of advertising is for high fat sugar salt products. So again, what that means in terms of what's visible to us, what's exposed, there's it's very much leaning towards the unhealthy. So mm -hmm. just cues upon cues that reinforce I guess our underlying food psychology, which is to eat high fat sugar options, it's it's a really hard tide to wade against. And then if you add in additional barriers, such as you've got a really constrained budget and additional barriers on your headspace as well, like the stresses that come from living in poverty, I think you can then start seeing like it's quite hard to withstand the food environment that is basically making the unhealthy much more visible and attractive than the than the healthy. Yeah, you introduce actually a, a topic we, we wanted to get onto, which was about sort of this cheap versus expensive and, you know, whether healthy, wh wh where does healthy food sit? So we had a debate last year, another podcast, actually, where we, we asked a question around whether eating healthy is cheaper or more expensive. And, and it seemed to be one of those hard to answer questions that depends on where you are in the world. So like South America, actually eating cheaply is the same as eating healthily because actually they everybody shops locally and that's where they get all their food from and also the circumstances. But one thing that we did agree on is that generally speaking, if you are from a lower income family, say in the UK, you also tend to be time poor and you perhaps don't have the resources to seek out nice recipes, food form, you know, information, things like that. So I assume you agree with with that. Is is it is that linked? Yeah, I would totally agree. So um, we constantly, as part of our work, are talking to parents in the area, and 
you know, I haven't met a parent who doesn't say, of course, I care about my child's health and happiness. Yes, ideally, I want to buy them healthy food options. But there's a number of other things I'm trying to solve for. So one is budget, so price, so it has to be affordable. The other is, as you say, convenience, limited headspace for various reasons, limited time, and then linked to the price taste as well. And again, then I think it's about the volume of food options that are convenient, affordable, tasty, but unhealthy versus options that are convenient, affordable, tasty and healthy. Mm. And I think just as there's just so many more that are unhealthy, uh, that but but on every other measure, they're easy to access, they're affordable there. So yeah, so I, I definitely think when we're thinking about is it cheaper or not to eat healthy, you need to take those things into account. I agree. Yeah, I think there was some research done by my colleague at Reading uh, that where she was looking at food poverty and, and interviewing people in South London. And I think even just things we don't, it's not just about what you buy in terms of food, it's about the gas to use the cooker. It's actually, do you own a microwave? It, you know, again, public health initiatives and researchers, we completely, we're just, you don't even think about that because we're not in that kind mm. of space to, you know, we're very fortunate. So it, it does remind you that it's not just the, oh, your food bill is a bit more expensive. It's it's all those challenges. And I think um, also one thing, if you're going to give your child one meal, then of course you're going to give them something like fried chicken that you know is going to, in theory, fill them up rather than, you know, a broccoli that they'll probably half eat and it's gone yeah. to waste. So I, I think there's the whole argument about healthy eating against in, in a kind of food insecurity. I completely understand why there's this disconnect because it's, yeah, priorities are completely different. Mm. The, the organisation, I, I totally agree with that, the organisation Food Foundation in the UK has tried to price the cost of a diet that basically aligns with the, um, what's it called, the basically like the plate that... Yeah, um, eat well plate. Eat, eat well plate, that's it, and found that, you know, the price of it is above what many um, people's household incomes is. So I think that's quite a stark measure about whether eating healthy is affordable or not for, for everyone. Yeah. At the same time, though, I, I, as I was mentioning um, earlier, that it doesn't have to be about getting, you know, Waitrose seasonal mm. vegetables, you know, tinned vegetables, frozen vegetables. I think there isn't enough about, and things like whole grain is also a big thing. Vegetables are important, but I know there's a fibre issue as well, that like people are overlooking that quite a lot in terms of healthy diet and children as well. So... It's a very complex challenge for, for everyone. It is and, indeed. It is yeah. indeed. We'll get on to the responsibilities as well, actually. Sorry, mm -hmm. Lakshmi. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important one, like the who is responsible for this. And I guess, you know, for children, the link between eating weight and mental health is, a, you know, a careful one that we need to balance, um, especially when kids, you know, get to an age where they're becoming really self-conscious. Um you know, to both of you, do do you think their strategies need to change with kids at different stages? I know, Natalie, you mentioned the visual cues, which I'm totally going to take you up on that because I have an 11 month old who's discovered doesn't like broccoli. But, um, you know, what what do parents need to be thinking about as uh, child development mature? I guess that I personally don't like the term obesity. I think it's a very triggering word. And I think mm. as soon as we start talking to children about obesity, you're creating certain conversations you're you're making you're victimizing people who are overweight I think it's a very complex area because we we also have of course the highest rates of lower self-esteem and anxiety around 
around weight and self-consciousness about you know bodies yeah so it's it's i i'd hate to be a, a child you know a teenager at the moment because it's just really a, a minefield um I, I feel the conversation should always be about a balanced diet. I think the word healthy as well is also sometimes a little misleading. Mm. There's no one healthy mm. food. So I, I think it's all about how we communicate, I think, to children and, and kind of present the information as, as clear as possible without making it targeting and personal, perhaps. And I guess to you, Sarah, like similarly, when you're looking at the food environments, are you looking at different strategies for different age groups? Yes, in terms of we obviously look at where different age groups spend their time, whether mm. that's, uh, you know, obviously younger kids in earlier settings, school age and schools and uh, young people probably more independently moving in street environments. Um, I agree with what you say, Natalie, on the word obesity. Part of our programme, and we have a specific work stream focused on this, is we are trying to reframe public understanding of obesity, um, a childhood obesity specifically, because when we started the programme, I guess we did all this evidence gathering about what is obesity actually about in terms of what's the underlying problem, what are the solutions. And I guess what that was pointing to was saying it's less about, you know, individual willpower or knowledge so much as it is about the food environments, food options around us. When we investigated kind of public understanding, and that was literally everyone across in income, education, public understanding was, well, when I hear childhood obesity, isn't that about an issue of parents' knowledge and willpower? And therefore, aren't the solutions all about education? So I think there's something about reframing it as an issue, as a structural issue, essentially, you know, who we're targeting, um, I guess, at least in our programme, who we're targeting is actually not individuals. So we're, we're almost ambivalent about whether the young people are overweight, obese, actually who we're targeting is those decision makers shaping the food around these children and young people. Because we think they're the ones who really have a lot of responsibility because they just so fundamentally shape what's available to us as, as children, young people, parents or the public anyway. So so yeah, so, so I guess I don't have much to say in, in, in specific weight management targeted programs because just basically that's yeah. not what, what we do. We do but yeah. I think in general, we need to reframe the conversation about obesity because if we just keep talking about it as one of willpower, we'll never get enough energy onto the solutions that are actually more about food environments. I guess also to add to that, sorry, just about... As a researcher, we do know that food preferences, so whether you're more likely to be someone who does actually like vegetables or a more balanced diet or whether you, you know, a sweet tooth or whatever, a lot of that is formed when you're young. So right. I think that's why a lot of, um, you know, the work we do is about preschool and about when, when a child's starting to categorise, understand different types of food. If you can try and be balanced at an early stage, let's hope it kind of carries on. Oh, that's super interesting. And actually, that's uh, answered a few questions for me, because actually, as a kid, I was quite overweight. Uh, and I've always wondered whether my my kind of my greediness and my my sweet tooth was kind of linked to those early formative years. So uh, so there you go. It probably was by the sounds of it. So you were talking about uh, sort of responsibilities, actually, I, I, I knew we'd be coming on to this. So open question, then. So whose job is it to be responsible for addressing the problems uh, around childhood nutrition? And, and it can't just be the, the parents' role, right? Yeah, right. absolutely. It's because um, it's a complex system that shapes 
our behaviors right um and there's lots of decision makers in that shape those those systems so yes parents but then as as i said kind of industry who's shaping our food retail environments is where which is where we buy most of our food shaping the a lot of the advertising around it government which i think has a really powerful lever in terms of policy and regulation um around that as well as school policy and then obviously school leaders who manage that so i think there's lots of people in who have a responsibility because essentially there's no single solution i think what certainly what we're trying to do in our little area in south london is basically to say how can we kind of knock off every single like all the things influencing the system and then basically hope for a cumulative impact on the healthiness of the food environment can we work with as many of the retailers food retailers as possible in this area to make fundamental changes to their store environments at the same time as working with as many schools and school food caterers as possible to make changes there at the same time as working with nursery settings um, and kind of different things around those to basically add up to change. I, I think one of the difficult things is with complex systems um, where there's all these things that need to change, mm. is that inertia and almost, and you can absolve individual players of responsibility because they're kind of saying, well, it's not solely my problem. And that I guess the thing is to say, no, you single player cannot solve this whole issue, but you have a clear responsibility within mm. it. Um, I, what we're trying to do as a charity, I guess, is to help those players get a better sense of what good looks like. So we hope that, say, we work with supermarkets to change store environments in our area in South London. Then we sort of demonstrated for their broader national and international chains what good looks like further on so they're not just hearing you've got responsibility you need to do better it's also like here is a practical you know we've worked with your peers to practically work out what that looks like it, i guess is our sort of our theory of how to get there to say lots of people are responsible but let's help you think about your role in the system and yeah what that looks like yeah. Can you, um, is there any particular interventions that you've done or any examples of previous campaigns that you know worked well that you can sort of highlight? Yeah, so we've just actually published a report with an organisation called Consumer Goods Forum, which um, is a partner we work with over the last 18 months. So they represent a number of uh, global consumer brands, which include both food manufacturers and like your big supermarkets. And what they did over a year in our area was to trial a load of changes in their store environments to try and influence what ended up in people's shopping baskets. It was really interesting, actually. And basically, there were a number of changes that had had a significant impact on what people bought, basically upped the nutrient-rich products and reduce the high fat sugar salt products, as well as not having actually a detrimental impact on profits in those mm. stores. So yeah, so I think there are a few things there. I mean, the most the successful ones were related to the principle of, like Natalie says, kind of visibility, price. So playing with like, what you're, what are you promoting? What are you putting a discount on? And what aren't you? Um, the thing that had less impact just in these trials were things around nutritional labeling. Uh, which is interesting mm. as well. Like, what is it that mm. cuts through in terms of a prompt? Um, 
I think that's a great foundation and a piece of research, a, a trial that mm. I think is worth building on. Yeah. And I guess from, from my perspective, in terms of the responsibility question, I think, of course, we shouldn't lay it all on parents, but I don't think you want to avoid apathy in that parents can do something, I think. And the work that we do at, at Reading with, for example, the CNE project where we've created tools that are to support families to help do small things that they can do to encourage vegetable consumption and healthy healthy diets is better than nothing, isn't it? And I think it would be so good to try and empower people to to do the small things because if mm. if we're all just kind of saying, oh, I'm not going to do anything because I can't help it that there's a fast mm. food restaurant at the end of my road, then nothing will change. So I think about create behavior change is all about trying to boost people enough with enough options and and confidence to try and give them ways to to make those small changes so um there's definitely some big people who run the country need to sort some things out but i think everyone can be doing the small bits as well and i think there is there are a lot of materials out there to support that it's just about how we how we frame that and and get get it to the right people as well i've always thought that for example food banks food banks do such a wonderful job in getting food to people but Sometimes what's available in a food bank isn't necessarily what is needed for people. Often mm. it's sometimes it's a lot of mm. carbohydrates, a lot mm. of white pasta, white rice. And I'm always wondering why there isn't a little bit more connection with nutritional advice there about or just leaflets um, and, and kind of almost appeals about can we try and get what people actually need nutritionally to communities. Um, it's all about access. Mm. Yeah, this is say, it's what we've been talking about. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I guess that speaks to, again, why COVID exacerbated these inequalities around access to nutrition. So those households that were already at risk of a poor nutritional quality diet are then more likely to be accessing emergency food supply, which isn't always the best quality nutritionally wise either. So yeah. I agree with that. I totally agree with you as well that this idea that it's the food system we need to change, that that's not about us as individuals and that we also have agency. And like you said, there's things that we can do, yeah, like resources you can give families now to help them navigate these unhealthy food environments. I think it's also about emphasising that ordinary people have a very important role in the food system, you know, as consumers and citizens you know, they influence industry and government. And I think that's also part of the the story. And when we're thinking about resources for ordinary people, I think it's also about how do you help people use that, use that consumer power, use that citizen energy for, um, mm. for pushing for change. And I think you can see that at the moment with the Marcus Rashford campaign. Yeah. You know, it's it's got over a million signatures now, his petition. So that's a million people basically saying we demand better from mm. um, from our policymakers around the food available to our children in schools. Yeah. It's just a shame it took a crisis for that to happen. Absolutely. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, is, absolutely. I was just going to say, it's interesting about the voice element, because I think there's a difference between giving a voice and thinking you're heard by politicians and by policymakers and, and then also purchasing power. I think there's, I think it's odd that it's often purchasing power that creates this change, not kind of campaigns and, and mm. 
I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly disillusioned by, by kind of policy and politics at the moment. So maybe that's just, I'm just a bit fed up of it, but yeah. How can we improve it? I don't know. (laughs) Do you think, um, just from the industry perspective, do you think the likes of food manufacturers are are doing enough to, to support these initiatives or do you think they're a big part of the problem? Yeah, they have to be part of the solution because they're clearly part of the problem. They're shaping Mm -hmm. the unhealthy environments. Um, and as I said, we as a charity both work work trying to campaign almost against them as well as working with players in yeah. the industry. And I guess one thing we've seen from working, for example, with this Consumer Goods Forum project, you know, it's a number of very big corporations very committed to making changes to support consumer health and family health. Um, I think you can see that, you know, there's differences in energy across different corporations probably shows there's some that could do even more but I think there's also a genuine barrier for them around the riskiness for a single industry player to experiment with fundamentally changing their offer because it's you know most of these markets are incredibly competitive Um, so there's also about risk appetite I think about experimenting like this and I think what can alleviate that barrier is better regulation basically regulation that would put industry on a level playing field saying you all have to do this you all have to make these fundamental changes that would basically take away the riskiness of a single industry player who is competing against Mm. other in the market that's super interesting i've never actually heard somebody say that before that the reason that you know potentially what's stifling innovation is just because the existing market means that anybody who wants to change anything is up against a disadvantage that's really interesting yeah. It's always a bit of a chicken and egg situation, I think, it with food industry, isn't it? That they, they want to see consumer demand before they've even, you know, I think we're seeing that a little bit in kind of plant-based products and things like that, aren't we? That there's a demand mm. for that. So suddenly food industry has woken up and is providing more options. Yeah, it, it, it's a weird thing of how do you create change in that way from, because I think food industry have a huge role to play and they're, you know, they're not always the the big bad wolf because they do do a lot of, I know that the the big players do have a whole part of the their business in a sense is about healthy nutrition um, uh, campaigns and things. But um, but actually, sometimes you often wonder: is that just a tick box, or is it what are you mm. actively doing? Um, mm. And I think yeah, regulation and holding them to account and is is important as well. Mm. So I think it's it's not helpful to just blame food industry, but at the same time, they are no. sourcing; they're giving us the food. So why can't they do it? well and (laughs) within the kind of what we need rather than what's going to make them the most money in a way yeah absolutely um one thing that we're doing because like you say Natalie it's sort of chicken and egg they're like well we need to see the demand but the demand won't come unless there's a kind of fundamental offer to consumers um one thing that we've invested in with um some organizations called big society capital um mission ventures and ascension ventures is something we call the good food fund which is basically investing in what we called healthier challenger brands. So, so basically these brands that do meet this need of being tasty, convenient, affordable, but also healthier than the current things that um, families are consuming. And I guess our theory of change of investing in them is to try and show the demand. So we're giving them the kind of boost to get out to market, get in front of customers And I guess the hope is that we will show bigger corporations, bigger food manufacturers and retailers that the demand is there through that by these brands effectively scaling and being purchased. So I think that's 
that's the way we're trying to get at it, obviously, through the levers that we own, trying to yeah do a bit of that R&D, I guess, on behalf of industry. That's so interesting. So do you have, is there any examples of some great challenger brands for us to look out for? Yeah, um, there's one called Insane Grain, which is basically okay. like uh, your healthy crisps, like a really tasty product, trying to substitute that really tasty, convenient snack, uh, article snack, which is crisps. There's a number of others, actually. I, um, I, I'll share, you know, the website details of the, the fund. I mean, there's just an initial crop, but we're hoping to attract more brands to the fund that, you know, have that kind of value proposition for customers, but that need support to scale. It's really nice to hear that you are supporting and funding and helping these brands, because I know margin is probably quite a big issue to level the playing field a little bit and be able to offer healthier products to customers. Um, so just to say, you know, it's been a really interesting discussion and we're almost out of time today, but I want to throw a big hypothetical question to both of you. So if you had the power to change one big thing about how the food industry works in terms of making nutrition better for children, uh, Natalie, what would you do? Oh gosh, I haven't had time to think. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that is a, that's a big question is, is money an issue in this or is it just no this is a no, hypothetical world okay. go, go no as issue. big as you want <laughs> okay i would probably provide a seasonal veg box to every family in the uk if possible um i think giving people access to vegetables and, and, and kind of healthy diet i think is a first step and especially if you bring it to their door i think um um, or even I know that community gardens, I think just um, encouraging kind of vegetables in the area, I think um, is, is, a, is if just from my perspective, we know that that is a first step and helps kind of change, change a bit of the bigger issues here. So I think uh, that mm. would be, um, yeah, there's either, yeah, a very expensive option or just community gardens with yeah, vegetables and, as a more, and do more, you, more realistic. Do you think... Um just on the, the the veg box do you think that should be something which is sort of a social good and is free or do you think it should just be super heavily subsidized that everyone can have access oh that's difficult i mean i i think if it was i don't know it sounds like quite a socialist idea i think those that can afford it should pay for those things and those that can't maybe should mm. um i i think yeah in a maybe in a in a perhaps um possible world i think yeah if I think just important, the important thing is access. How you give people that access is the tricky thing, isn't it? But um, yeah. but I think that, that yeah, that is a, I think one, one small thing that could, that could, could be the case is just that bringing the, bringing the good food to people closer to them is going to help um, in their it. kind of, in that kind of micro environment. Yeah. Yeah. And that'll probably go a long way in improving our health long-term, the whole food is medicine concept. Um the prevention piece and what about you Sarah oh yeah it's a big question I've, I can't decide, I've got two but I can't decide I'm gonna say them both which is uh, breaking the rules I think just building on Natalie's point I'd reform the two big healthy subsidy food subsidy programs we've got in the UK which are healthy start vouchers which give vouchers to um, low-income households with um, young children to to spend on fruit and veg and I'd reform free school meals and just make them both universal because making them universal is the best way, it's the easiest way to make sure those who really need the, those things access them, rather than mm -hmm. all these eligibility criteria, which A, create stigma, 
prevents people from accessing them, but also just creates loads of costs trying to work out whether someone's eligible or not. Um, so I'd reform those systems as well. And, and within that, um, in the school, I think, you know, make sure that all the incentives around school food are aligning to nutritional quality, not just price per meal. So that's yeah. one. And I think the other one I would, um, I would do is make mandatory disclosure by industry about the proportion of their profits that are coming from high fat sugar salt products versus healthier. Interesting. Um, you know, at the very at the very least, just creating transparency and disclosure around that. Um, and then I think, you know, obviously regulate to do better. But I think just disclosing it in the first place, I think, would be very enlightening and hopefully create competition to get better on that on that measure. And that's it. Sorry, that was way more than one. <laughs> no, no, this is good. Uh, you had you had a bit extra time to think about it as well. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely gave me more ideas. <laughs> Um, so thank you both so much for this. It's been a fascinating discussion and uh, I know one that we could probably spend quite a long time on. We probably will. So uh, thank you for outlining the issues and some of the solutions. Um, so I just wanted to say a huge big thank you to you both uh, and uh, looking forward to hearing a bit more about what you guys are doing. So on that, where can people find out more about your work? Yes. So um, as I said, the CNE project, we have um, a website where we have all our very lovely um, ebooks and activities for families, and it's available at um, seeandeat.org. Yeah, available in six different languages. So it's uh, if you want to try it in, in Italian or English, you can. Or, um, and yeah, it's all all the items are free there, and it's all about it's all evidence based resources to support vegetable consumption. And if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, how would they best do that? Yeah, so you're very welcome to to email me n.a.macento at reading.ac.uk or find me on Twitter, uh, just my name. Yes. And what about you, Sarah? How can people find out more about your work and the work at Guys of St. Thomas's Charity? Uh, they can go to our website, which yeah, if they just Google Guys of St. Thomas Charity, and then there's information about the programme there. And also the huge portfolio of partners we work with. So I have to say everything we deliver, we deliver through others. Um, so we work with, with some amazing organisations to do that, but you'll find them on, on our website as well. And where can people find out about the Challenger brands? Um, again, if you go to our website, it will link okay. you through to the Good Food Fund. Perfect. Thanks very much. Great stuff. Thank you both again. Uh, everybody, this has been the EIT Food Fight podcast. If you'd like to learn more about what we're doing, please go to eitfood.eu forward slash podcast or hit us up on Twitter at eitfood. Thank you for listening and keep fighting for a better food future. Thank you. Thank you very much.